Hello, and welcome to the Health in Europe podcast. I'm your host, Greg Bianchi. We've launched this podcast to bring you the latest on WHO's work in the European region. Our region is broad and diverse, from the mid-Atlantic and stretching as far as the Chinese border, we work with fascinating and driven individuals and groups. This podcast is about hearing their stories and how they might impact your day-to-day life. Earlier this week marked two years since the first cases of COVID-19 were detected in the WHO European region. As we pass this solemn milestone, we'll hear from a health worker on the front line, how vaccines are helping us turn the tide and what it was like to run the COVID-19 response in Europe. I do seven or ten hour shifts, during which I cannot eat or drink. We can't take off our protective equipment once we put it on. On the first day at the COVID-19 hospital, I entered the room where a patient was crying. When I asked what had happened, he told me his mother-in-law had died and how he regretted not being able to comfort his wife. All I could do to ease his pain was to place a hand on his chest, but he couldn't even see my face. These are the words of Laura Lupi. A newly graduated nurse who spoke with WHO Europe in April 2020 about the challenges she and colleagues faced as COVID-19 cases surged. Her experiences are traumatic, but all too common. Health workers have faced an incredibly difficult few years, with many battling the pandemic, causing a huge strain on their lives, both physically and mentally. Nearly two years later, Sarah Tyler, a communications consultant working with WHO Europe, spoke with Laura about her experiences during the pandemic and her hopes for the future. Laura, we last spoke to you in April 2020 at the very start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Your message to people then, warning them about the threat of COVID-19 and the need to come together was incredibly powerful. What changes have you seen in the past two years in your colleagues, in yourself, in the population at large, and in your patients? Beh, che dire, i cambiamenti sono stati molteplici. Innanzitutto, io ricordo benissimo che Well, what I can say is the changes have been many. First of all, I remember very well that at the beginning of the pandemic, the first time I spoke with you, the first time I did an interview with you, I felt a sense of hopelessness and fear, which were overwhelming. And although two years have passed, I must say that it seems that very little time has passed, because with the shutdown, it seems that time has stopped but at the same time it has passed extremely quickly. And this period really changes people. They've changed in an incredible way. First of all, the main changes were seen in the feelings of the people. Initially, among them, you could see you could find a fear, uncertainty in the future, anxiety, but especially a lot of depression. After the initial two months of lockdown in Italy, we moved on to hope because seeing the cases finally start to drop made us reach this feeling that seemed almost lost. But then, unfortunately, we went from hope to indifference. This was perhaps the worst phase, because people, the population at large, they managed to nullify the immense psychological and physical efforts we made in staying locked in the house for two months. Unfortunately, selfishness and arrogance took over as a feeling. 
So much so that they made people deny the evidence, deny the existence of COVID-19, and deny its danger despite the images that passed every day on television. We nurses and healthcare workers have gone from being the heroes of the first wave to being treated and seen as pawns manipulated by the government. We went from being acclaimed to being hated, sometimes attacked, even threatened. As far as our psychological condition is concerned, it is hard and tough because after two years we are still in this condition, still working with this disease, to see that, yes, there have been changes, there has been an evolution or change in the virus, but to see that there are still cases, it's very heavy. There's so much discontent. Burnout in so many of us is also evident in so many young people who have just recently started their working careers. Unfortunately, in Italy, the figure of the nurse has always been underestimated. At the beginning of the pandemic, I hoped that this would finally change, that nurses would finally be seen for what they really do, for what they really go through in their daily work. And at first it almost seemed like it really was. It almost seemed like we had finally changed the way others saw us. Instead, we were back to square one, back to how we were before the pandemic. Everyone has forgotten the efforts we're making, the efforts we have made, and the efforts we will continue to make, the sacrifices that we will continue to make. Salaries continue to be low for nurses. There are a few of us, and nurses have precarious contracts. So there have been many changes at the psychological level, but not at the work level, unfortunately. It's astonishing also that people don't seem to be afraid anymore. First, they were really coming to the hospital scared and terrified. You could really see the terror in the patient's eyes. But now they come and they almost don't care about having COVID. They don't care about infecting those around them. They don't care about anything. This is very unfortunate because COVID continues to exist, continues to take victims and continues to create discomfort. People just don't seem to care anymore. Laura, if you had a message for these patients today, what would it be? Mm, that they must continue to pay attention, must continue to pay attention because COVID continues to be a dangerous virus. But above all, we must vaccinate those who have not yet done so, because there was a clear difference between the before and after vaccines. Especially now with this new variant, with Omicron, the patients who are coming in now have found out about being positive by accident, whereas before they arrived with obvious symptoms such as respiratory failure, cough and fever. Now they found out by accident if, for example, they come into the emergency room because they've fallen, they have a femur fracture. The moment we go do the COVID test for admission, which is a standard practice now, they found out that they're positive and asymptomatic because they're vaccinated and therefore it is essential to vaccinate. That, I think, is the main message. Vaccination first. Nearly two years on, does the pandemic still affect your work? And how important were the vaccines in the eyes of frontline health workers? Yes, COVID continues to be a protagonist in our daily working life. It's a daily battle, especially with this Omicron variant, which is very contagious. Many of the wards that had been closed months ago had to be reopened. What I can say is that while before vaccines, people were coming to us with COVID and with very serious symptoms, now the symptoms are much more mild. So the workload has fortunately decreased for us, as has attention among us healthcare workers since we've been vaccinated with three doses. We can work so much more calmly, knowing that even if it were to happen and we got infected, at least we are protected by the vaccine. 
Before, we worked with much more fear and much more anxiety about getting sick. Even at the hospital level, while there were ICU departments dedicated to COVID-19, now they are less busy. They mainly work with unvaccinated people. And now, paradoxically, this virus is circulating so much that so many more people are affected. Also those who come with problems that require a surgical intervention unrelated to COVID. There are so many who are COVID positive that they open surgical departments dedicated to these people. So we're trying to circumvent the situation. COVID-19 has now become our daily life and we try to live with it. But fortunately, the parts such as intensive care and sub-intensive care units are less busy and we see the effects of vaccines compared to a year ago and two years ago. The situation has definitely improved. Given your call at the start of this pandemic for people to come together to help defeat COVID-19 and your experiences since then, what are your hopes for the future and what lessons should be learned? I honestly wish I knew that too. The feeling of solidarity has been lost after the first lockdown, as I've said before. You can see that we have gone from fighting together against this new enemy to being selfish, to being uncaring. I hope most of all is that people precisely learn to become more selfless. I was really hoping that with this pandemic, we would learn to think more about our neighbors. And initially we did. But then the exact opposite happened. I don't know what you have to do to get back to that feeling of solidarity. And also because now people are no longer afraid of this virus. And so it is no longer a common enemy. Now it has become just an enemy that everyone wants to fight themselves. Another thing I sincerely hope is that once and for all, the nursing professional is recognized, but most importantly, respected. And again, it almost seemed like we had succeeded at first, but then it all turned out to be in vain. The most important lesson is that you have to learn to trust science. Science is the only thing that can help us get out of the situation from this condition. And if only people had more trust, then maybe we would get out of this much easier. Also, and this is an appeal I make, do it for us health workers who are exhausted. We're really tired. And we're also tired of being afraid now. We're just too tired. We will be able to do it much more easily. Also because I make an appeal for us sanitary workers, that we are exhausted. We are really tired, but we are also tired of having fear. While many of us continue to do all we can to protect ourselves from COVID-19, one major turning point has been vaccination. But around the world, we know that more needs to be done to ensure that everyone everywhere can access the vaccines. Often we hear about people who choose not to get vaccinated, but we hear less about barriers which make it hard for people to get vaccinated in the first place. Some of these barriers can be remarkably obvious, with solutions that are, in reality, very easy to provide. And if we say that we cannot leave anyone behind, First, let us find whom did we leave behind. And I think that should be the starting point for us to move forward. 
And that should be the forward-looking vision of this COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Siddhartha Datta is WHO Europe's Programme Manager for Vaccine Preventable Diseases. I asked him about what needs to be done to understand why people might not be getting vaccinated against COVID-19 and ways that we can solve this, drawing on examples from vaccination campaigns against other diseases. Yeah, I think, like I said, I think the starting point should be uh, whom did we leave behind? Uh, did, is, is there any population group in my uh, community uh, who did not receive a vaccine? If we cannot identify that, that should be the first pointer to go out and find out who they are. And then when we know who they are, it will be extremely important that we engage with them to understand why a population group is not coming forward. But also in a parallel sphere, we need to understand also that population which came to us, why did they come? So I think we need to know what, what drove a population to come and get the vaccine. And the other group, why are they not coming? As in, in our world, as we say, drivers and barriers. Find out what are the drivers for a population to come and get the vaccine and find out the barriers, why somebody is not coming to get a vaccine. Each and every population group will be different. Each and every drivers and barriers that are determining my vaccine acceptance behavior will be different. Could you highlight an example where learning the barriers and drivers to vaccination made a difference? So, you know, in terms of finding out what are the um, challenges in a, in a population group should stem from understanding who, who are they, they are not coming you know, upfront and getting the vaccine. Often in the immunization world, we, we tend to uh, put them under the cover of vaccine hesitant group. And this vaccine hesitancy is a spectrum. It's not a one-time close tight compartment that you can put everybody there. Within that spectrum, WHO Regional Office has been spearheading this work around understanding what are the factors around demand and acceptance of the vaccine. And if I turn the pages in a few years back when we had this huge measles outbreak in 2017, 2018 in the WHO European region, we were trying to find out these disadvantaged population groups in a country and why are they not coming forward in, in, to get the vaccine while they know that the measles is so lethal, even they can kill children, and they were killing you know, people in the, in the European region. One of the uh, you know, community that we have looked into who were termed as being vaccine hesitant by the system when we went to their community and trying to understand why that community was not receiving the vaccine, we found that they actually were not vaccine hesitant. They were willing to receive the vaccine. The only issue that that community had was that the services were not open at a time when they would come back from their work and then get their vaccine services. So meaning that their Parents, they were big families. They had to go out every day to look out for work so that you know, they can put food on the table, which is important. But at the time they would come back, the health clinic would close. So the health clinic were running between 9 to 5. By the time they would come and get settled on the family, the clinic is closed. So even with all the good intentions that the family would have, want to protect their kids, they were not being able to get that uh, you know, uh, vaccine. So in engagement with the local health center, 
the only intervention that that local health center and WHO did was to extend the clinic hour by one more hour in the afternoon. So just from not by closing at five o'clock, you go by until six o'clock in the evening, the vaccination coverage after one year increased by 20%. So I think it's extremely important that we not just look into, when we talk about hesitancy, should not only look into what the population is not doing. And that is extremely important that we understand what are the, what are those barriers which are preventing a community to come and get the, receive the services, which is there at the doorstep. So uh, w- when we say hard-to-reach communities, the hard-to-reach community should be always be seeing they don't have to live in the mountains to become a hard-to-reach. They can be, services can be just at your doorstep, but could still be hard for me to reach those services. So and I think these are, these are uh, by doing you know, you cannot, you, you, you need to go to the community. We need to go out and, you know, get our shoes dirty to understand why that community is behaving in a way we are seeing it from a distance. But just by looking into it, we will, we will be able to unpeel uh, or peel off those layers which, which will give us more information. One thing, you know, in the European region and also across the globe, I think everybody wants to keep their community safe. I don't think anybody wants to keep have an unsafe community. It is just understanding those behavioral and cultural issues or insights will give us much better, you know, managing the health programs, understanding what people want, and get a better impact. Dr. Dorit Nitsan has worked for WHA Europe for over 17 years and most recently was Regional Emergency Director helping coordinate the response to COVID-19 in the European region. But what was it like to run the emergency response? In this interview, Dr. Nitsan speaks with Nick Fry, a communications consultant with WHA Europe about her work on the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Nitsan starts by explaining a little bit about how the team managing the response was set up. We decided to really anchor us into the countries, into the place, you know, where people are, not to stay in Copenhagen. So we established the, what we call the hub, hubs and spokes system in place structure. We have hubs in the countries that need us with spokes in the countries surrounding them. So we were on the ground before COVID, long before, long is a year and a half. So let's not exaggerate. Everything was new. We are a baby. But our first steps were actually taken before doing the prevention and preparedness work. When we were already involved in few emergencies at the the polio outbreaks, measles outbreaks, we had earthquakes in earthquake in Albania, we had crisis in different countries, but we were really working here and there as needed and practicing. We worked very hard. We continue to work very hard influenza preparedness and, and uh, response, preparing the laboratories to, to be in place, preparing the teams in the laboratories in the countries, referral laboratories were established, collaborating centers, partnerships with um, foreign partners, 
with emergency medical team. So everything was kind of, you know, it's a big, big, big puzzle that pieces were flying into it. And when the COVID came, it found us different at this emergency. And, and how has the, the structure and the work of the IMST changed over the two years? Yes, we were. That's another thing that we learned. We learned that the structure has to be tailored and modified according to the needs, according to what is coming. So if initially we had to have the laboratory side, the readiness team in place and, and getting the countries know what the system is. So we focused on different issues. Later on, we had to understand that risk communication, for example, is not a standalone. It has to come with community engagement. It has to come very strongly with the, all the infodemic that was spreading. So another uh, area that we were not at all thinking that is going to come, this infodemic, this falsified machinery that is beyond our ability to understand why it, it was happening, we had to very quickly focus on that with and establish a team and, and you know that's one part then the part of the clinical management we had to focus with time more and more on the way that countries hospitals primary healthcare public health services are able to manage cases able, able to identify them follow them and do it in the right way and um, what one thing do you hope might come out of this pandemic? What positive change would you like to see? I think that this pandemic is an eye-opener. And um, unfortunately, humanity, you know, we tend to forget. We tend to let go. What I would like to see is that we really go back, we learn, we reflect, we change the way we WHO work, we help countries do the same and get better, not only prepared, but get systems as routine, not for preparedness. Get it really uh, um, uh, engraved into their uh, lives. So what I mean is universal health coverage for all. No doubt that this is something that needs to be done. Primary healthcare systems should be strongly linked to the communities and the public health services. Good, elastic and flexible systems that are able to accommodate the needed adjustments should be in place at any time, not only for emergencies, but also for other needs of society. Respect of, to the elderly, to those who are, you know, left behind in many countries, to the vulnerable, including giving a hand solidarity. I do hope that these things that are so part of our lives as WHO will become the routine for everyone else on earth. And that would be fantastic.
that's all we have time for. Special thanks to all the guests on this week's episode. If you'd like to find out more about any of the topics covered in this episode, you can do so on the WHO Europe website, that's euro.who.int, or in the show notes. The voiceover for Lara Lupi was by Veronica Danner. Make sure to leave us a rating, and if you like what you've heard, recommend us to a friend or a colleague. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you.